Welcome to the Life Church Podcast. We are an Acts 2.42 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through his word and by his spirit. As Dave outlined last week, we're now beginning a new series at the beginning of this year. And we're looking at something called the Apostles' Creed. Now, for the gamers amongst you, I probably knew a bit more about Assassin's Creed than I did about the Apostles' Creed. So I did a little bit of sort of research into it. And what was clear was the Creed was something that the New Testament church actually looked at establishing to try and get agreement and knowledge about what Christians and the early church believed. Because at that point, a lot of the things that were being put forward, people were disputing, and sort of teaching was coming in and out. So as I was beginning to look at this, it really did take me back to my university days. Now, I won't tell you how many years ago that was, far too many. But for me, that testing happened at university. I went to a university that was quite, in those days, a trendy university. It did social work, it did teaching, it did youth work. And so for me, the things that I'd learned and been taught in the church I went to suddenly came under massive examination. And it wasn't nasty, genuinely. It was, well, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? And I had to be honest and say, for some things, I'd sit down and go, do you know what? I don't know. And actually, some things, genuinely, I said, I'm not sure there's a background to that. I'm going to ditch that. But the other things were things that God reminded me and said, no, that's genuine, that's real. That's something that if you begin to undermine, that actually your foundations begin to crumble. And so in the New Testament church, that's what the Apostles' Creed was for them. It was those fundamental foundation stones that actually if you began to chip away on, it meant that actually you were undermining everything else. Just to be really clear, we're not preaching a creed. We're not preaching a creed, we're preaching the Bible. So we're focusing on what the Bible says about these core concepts. We're using the Apostles' Creed as a bit of a template, as a bit of a framework to explore that. So what we're looking at today is actually yeah, the first session, and I think Dave was mentioning he thought Lucas was looking at it. So... You know, I don't know what a, a lofty esteem I'm being put forward as, uh, as looking at this one. But we're going to look at this first element, which is, I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. And I'm going to read quite a few Bible passages, which I'm sure will please some people and others, perhaps not so. But for me, that principle is entrenched in what I read. So I read in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. This is what the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, says. I am the Lord who made everything, who stretched out the heavens by myself, and who alone spread out the earth. In Psalm 24, my namesake, King David, said, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. 1 Chronicles says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. There is nothing in the earth that is not God's. 
There is nothing that has come in the earth that hasn't been made by him or making the things that will make those things. God has made everything. He is in charge of everything. And if I want to leave you my main point today, I don't want you to switch off once I've said the main point, but if I want to be clear on what my main point is, it is that our God is infinitely powerful but intensely personal. I'm going to say that again. He's infinitely powerful, but he's intensely personal. I think a lot of people question one of those two. I think they think those two are a bit opposites. That those people who think that a God can be powerful and that God is in charge of everything and is the epitome of almighty power struggle to think that a God could care about me, that a God could be personal. Because he's so big, he's so strong, he's so holy, he's so glorious, how could he worry, care, think, value me? I'm small, I'm little. And that's very much a, an ethos, I think, of the world we live in today. That power, greed, as Gordon Gecko said, for those of you who remember that, is good. But it means that you are a, a lofty perch and that you don't care, worry, or think about the others. Or if God is personal and he's lowly, then that means he doesn't have the power. People really struggle with matching those two. But I want to reinforce today that the God I believe in is both intensely powerful and intimately personal with me. And I have a personal relationship with, with him. The other thing I want to affirm is that there is one God. There is one God, there is one God, and he is one God and there is no other. Now, do I struggle a bit with the, the, I don't struggle with the principle of the Trinity, I get it. Do I understand what it means, how you can have one God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Do I totally understand that? No, I can't pretend I do. It's one of the many questions I'm going to have when I get to heaven. Please explain it to me a bit better. But again, for me, that is an absolute fundamental principle. There are not multiple gods, as there was in the Greek philosophy and others, or other gods. There is one God, and that is a God with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In 1 Timothy, it says there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. And if we look back over time, in many ways, the Christian church that said they believed in a God would predominantly have agreed with that concept that there's one God. What we're seeing now is not only is that concept being questioned outside the church, but actually it's also being questioned inside the church. That churches are saying, yeah, we can have multiple gods or there's an equality of gods or there's a level of ecumenism across different gods. But no, there is one God and a God in three persons. Also, it might be a word you struggle with, but my God is a jealous God. And again, that's a word that's used in the Bible, but humanly speaking, jealousy has been very negative, and jealousy is something about lack. So because I perhaps lack self-esteem or lack self-confidence in myself, I might be jealous of somebody else. When I say God is a jealous God, it's not because he worries about whether you're going to love him and care for him or not. He is more than secure enough 
to not have to worry about that. But he will not share his position with anybody. He's jealous in the terms of he can only have the position as God. God over the earth, God over your life. He will not share it with anybody. I've been, I set myself the task of trying to read through the Old Testament. If I don't, I'm quite focused. And when I focus, I'm a bit more disciplined. So I set myself the focus of reading through the Old Testament. And I'm reasonably on track with it. But what I have spotted is, as I've read through from probably the book of Kings, when David and the other kings sort of began to decline in there, following God, to where I am now, I just finished sort of Jeremiah this morning. God says all the way through, you have committed adultery on me. You have gone off to other gods. You've loved other gods. You've put other gods first. And the really astounding thing isn't that God got to the point of saying he'd had enough, but how long it took God to get to that point where he said he had enough. And even in the chapter before, the Israelites are taken away by the king of Babylon. He is still saying, God is still saying, if you return to me, if you come back to me, if you believe in me, if you do the things I've said to me again, I will stop the thing that's going to happen. But even at that point, prophets were saying it's not going to happen. False prophets were saying the king of Babylon isn't going to come because Jerusalem is impregnable. It's God's holy place. It's where the temple is. And because the temple is, nothing can happen. And in the end, God had to say, no, it's going to happen. You don't love me anymore. You've committed adultery on me. You've gone off to believe in other gods. You've done horrendous things. And so basically Jerusalem was invaded and destroyed, as God had said. But the fantastic thing again is even then God said, but I'm going to bring you back because I love you so much as my people Israel. I've taken you off to Babylon, but I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to restore you. And there will be joy again in Jerusalem as those people come back. And so it reminds me once again that because my God is infinitely powerful, he is always in control. He was in control of Israel when Israel was taken off to Babylon. Now, they didn't believe that. Why would they? Their walls had been broken down. The temple had been broken down. All the wonderful things that David had built were broken and destroyed and taken off. People like Daniel, if you, you know people in the Bible, were taken off to Babylon Horrendous things happened to them when they were little and they were servants in there. But even during that point, God was in control of everything that happened. And if I said to you, do you feel God's in control? That would probably depend on how your life is at the moment. If your life's going quite well and you believe in God, then you might say, yeah, he's definitely in control. I'm doing really well. I've got a great job. I've got a wife or a husband. I've got children. Great. God's perfectly in control. But when things begun to become a bit more challenged, we actually go, hmm, not quite so sure. We begin to doubt his power. We begin to doubt his love. And that concept of an infallible God begins to get eroded because we focus on feelings and circumstances, not the reality of the fact that God is in control. At the moment, it's particularly challenging for some people as they look at the situation in Israel, situation in Gaza, situation in Ukraine, situation with lots of other things in the world, you'll say, well, God cannot be in control because he's letting that happen. And that is one of the challenges is I have to be blunt with him and say, yes, he is. He is letting it happen because that is the choice that those countries have made. Because there's one principle that I have to say, there's a few, but one of the first ones is that God has given us as humans free will. 
When Adam was made, God gave Adam free will. He allowed Adam to make a choice. Adam could make a choice to leave the apple or to take the apple. And Adam chose, through his own free will, to take the apple, to know the knowledge of good and evil, and therefore to take consequences. So God has given you free will. Even though when you sometimes follow through on that, it grieves him, it hurts him, it causes him sadness. I know in my own life I've made bad choices. I have. Please don't believe I'm standing up here as a person who's never had anything wrong, never done anything wrong. That's far from the truth. So there's things I've done that have hurt people I love. But the fantastic thing is I've got a God who turns my mistakes and my evil things into good. If I give it back to him, if I ask his forgiveness, if I ask him to come back into it, all of a sudden, those horrible things that I've done suddenly morph gradually, not instantly, over time become to his good. Relationships are restored. It means I can talk to people who've perhaps struggled in the same way I did and share with them how God's come through in my life. So the first one is God's free will. And God respects and honors that free will so much he allows consequences. So the children of Israel had to accept the consequence of their actions being the destruction of Jerusalem and the whole country being taken as refugees and as migrants into a different country. And God allows sort of consequences here like natural disasters, earthquakes, storms, all those sorts of things happen as a consequence of us not always looking after the world the way that we should do, putting economic benefit ahead of looking after our earth and being careful with it. He sometimes will allow pain because he knows that sometimes through that pain we'll return to him and give our lives back to him for him to then do good with it. The other one is that God's perfect plan for earth was disrupted by sin. That again, there was a consequence. If we'd have stayed and Adam and others had stayed in his perfect will, then things would have continued and he would have blessed and he would have guided and he would have left. But the brokenness in this world has an implication. And as a result of that, there is harm in this world. There is a breakdown in certain things that have kept this whole earth sort of together. I'm going to obviously speak about fatherhood. It's going to be a key point that I'm going to get to. And actually, fatherlessness is one of the most horrible and dangerous things that I believe has happened, is the lack of fathers, the lack of fathering, the lack of care that a father should provide for his family has meant that so many people have struggled and there's been so much damage. It doesn't take a lot of analysis to look at number of young people in care, number of young people that progress into drug and alcohol misuse, number of young people that become homeless, number of young people that end up in prison. It is something like a 96% equation that for all of those, they are people who have not had a father. And that isn't any blame of anybody who's in a relationship where they may not have that father figure in their life. But as a result, that has been some of the implications of it. But, and it's a big but, God's ultimate plan can't be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. There may be a time lag. There may be challenges before God can begin to redeem the things that have happened. But God's plans for your life and my life can't be thwarted. 
When I look back at some of the things that have happened in my life, yeah, I look back and think sometimes why those happened. But I'm also honest enough to say that over time, they're now less painful. So I look back at some decisions I made in my 20s and I think, whoa, at the time I thought it was a massive issue, a massive problem. But over time, it's become less painful. God's eased it. He's made that into sort of something else over his time. It's temporary. And if we look at the legacy of an eternal God, and you again believe that, it's another principle I think we're looking at in these sort of Sundays. So if we believe in a principle of an eternal God, of not just 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, but of a millennium, of billions of years, then the small problems that we had in two, three, four, five years just pale into a bit of insignificance. We are in a world that's very much about instant gratification. We have to do it now because it feels good. And if I want it, I want it now. Rather than recognizing that sometimes we have to do something or not to do something for a long-term good. And again, a principle for God is that he needs to be someone who we listen to, that we worship, that we honor for our entire lives, not just in the short term. So how do we honor God over his creation? And it's interesting that creation is one of the first works that the church said had to be accredited to God. They had to believe in creation. Genesis 1, 1, beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I won't go into debate because I'm not intelligent enough to go into debate about a six-day creation, six, sorry, a day being a, pe- a statement rather than a period of time. And again, the Bible says at times a day is like a thousand years or a millennium or whatever. I'm not going to go into discussion about is the earth a young earth or an old earth. As I said, I'm not intelligent enough or good enough at debating to go into that. But I'll tell you one thing. I believe that God could actually have created it in a second, not six days. He didn't need to wait for six days and have a rest in between. He could have gone and instantly everything that's in the earth now could have been created in that instant from scratch with it looking old at that time. So I don't have any problem believing that. But again, this belief is one of those that have been the most challenged. Whereas one God has been challenged, the concept of a God who creates the heavens and the earth has come in for massive challenge. Particularly if we go back to, I think it was 1880s, was the first books written by Charles Darwin, Origins of Species, said there's an evolution, there's a gradual development, there's a soup that comes from somewhere and that soup gradually creates something else and something else creates something else. Now, again, as I said, for me, evolution is the equivalent of getting a bag, paper bag, plastic bag, or whatever, throwing a few metal things in it, shaking it up and down, and all of a sudden, a Rolex or a Ferrari comes out. That's a funny way of looking at it, but for me, that's the equivalent of that level of faith and belief. Now, the way people get around that is by saying, it took a billion years. So that's how they try and get across the intellectual gap for that in that it took a billion years. But believe me, I think if you shook that bag for a billion years, you still wouldn't see anything come from it. So I'm not gonna fall out over it. It's one of those things that, you know, I have a belief and as I said, I don't have 
thing. But for me, it goes across that level of believability. Because for me, I have to believe that creation is real. Jill and I watched the film Oppenheimer the other day. And what again became really clear to me is there's a big issue around intellect. Perhaps the more intellectual people are, perhaps the more have knowledge, they actually struggle more with the thing called faith. Because actually, if they can't prove it, they struggle with it. And I think that would probably have been the thing for him. He had to know scientific fact, proof, and evidence for it. Whereas for me, I just have a simple faith. I just say, God, I believe it. You say it, I believe it. The problem is that once people begin to undermine their faith in bits, what do you hold on to? Once you begin to undermine God, one God, one God who created heaven and earth, and you begin to pick and choose which one you believe and which one you don't, what are you actually basing your life on? Because once you lose faith in some things, you will lose faith in others. You'll stop believing that Mary was a virgin. You'll stop believing that God was a great designer. You'll stop believing that I have good things in my life. The devil will begin to say, well, you stop believing that. Why do you believe that? And all of a sudden, everything unravels. So if I move to four pictures, because for me, creation is really precious. I love the outdoors. And I was saying to Dave is, whilst these aren't photos of me, I've actually been all of those four places. So I've actually rock climbed at Idwell Slabs. And I've done a very similar move to that one that's illustrated there. And just as a bit of a tale, um, my friend, sorry, me and my best man went away for a rock climbing weekend, the weekend before my wedding. And that was him. So he was underneath an underhang, sorry, an overhang, and he was climbing with a thing called um, set climbing, where you put in bits of metal in the rock rather than top roping from the top. So he put a little bit of metal just about where that person is there and said, right, I'm going to go for the overhang. So he put the little bit of metal in and he went to grab over the overhang and the overhang fell off. The overhang was a brick, probably about three foot by four foot. So he's on the rock wall. I'm underneath with a rope, and all of a sudden I'm seeing this four by four piece of rock coming straight at me. So I had to dive sideways. The rock grazed my arm and cut my arm, but I had to be smart enough to keep him on the rope, because if I'd just panicked and let go, he would have fallen about 80, 90 feet. So my love of creation is also tempered by the fact that it can be dangerous but also the fact that God was in charge and that God was in control. It's little things. But I look back and think that was a week before my wedding and both of us could have died at that point. Some of the most spiritual times I've ever had have been in the open air. Um, this place that I looked was a place called Grindelwald, which I think is in Switzerland, that I've skied on. And standing on the top of that mountain is one of the most spiritual places I have ever been. Because I looked out and said, there has to be a God. This beauty cannot be here unless my God created it. And I just sort of cried a little bit because I'm a bit emotional at times. And I said, God, you're amazing. You're fantastic. So creation is one of the greatest examples of the being a loving, caring God. Because he made it fantastic for us. 
I must admit, you probably can't see it as well, potholing, it was okay, I could take or leave it. So that was potholing a thing called the cheese press, where you have to squeeze your head, and you can just about get your shoulders through it. And I had probably a similar size belly, so I was able to get through when I was in my 20s. But creation is really important to us. Isaiah 64 verse 8 says, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. You made us. A potter can make something and he can decide he doesn't like it, squash it, squish it, and make it again. Even if it's been baked, it can be put back in water again, the constituent parts can be broken up and made again. And that's perhaps hard for us to actually say to God, yeah, I'm just as insignificant as a piece of clay, but you love me enough to make me into something that's special and use me for something that is special. God sits a part of it, but also, as I said before, God's a jealous God, and he will not allow us to either worship his creation or worship a part of it. He will not allow that. The last thing I want to look at is that whether you believe God is a good, good father. And I know that's obviously a song, but that's the thing for me that really brings this story together. He's intensely powerful, but he's intimately personal because he loves us. He loves us as a father. The term that God uses continuously through the Bible is Abba, which is an, a word of daddy. And actually, Jesus was the first person who began to use a terminology of a father or a loving father as his father. Now, I recognize that that is a particular challenge because the concept of fathers for some people is not an easy or a good one. And even just chatting to some people over the last few weeks or today, yeah, people have got challenges in their lives when they begin to think of father. I give thanks for some of the dads in this room. There are some fantastic dads in this room. There really is. Dads who've loved, cared, supported, looked after their children. And so for their children, it is quite easy perhaps for them to say, yeah, I've got really good memories and thoughts and links of, of God as a father so I can follow that. For some of you, I know that is not as easy. I was sharing just with Danny before and saying, when I first sort of sat there with my eldest Samuel in my arms, I went, oh my days, how am I going to cope here? And I actually perhaps gave my dad a bit more of a break because I recognized how tough it was. And I said, yeah, you know, this is really hard. I've also got to be honest and say, as I continued as a dad and as I think I put good things in place and looked after and cared for them, I also had to look back and go, well, actually, that wasn't great. That shouldn't have happened. Now I am a dad and I'm putting my children first. Now I'm loving them, caring for them, trying to give as much as I can unconditional love for them. I can now look back and recognize that that wasn't there. And I also recognize that for me growing up, I was scared of a heavenly father because I'd been scared of an earthly father. That I said, my father in my perception loves me when I'm good. Therefore, my heavenly father will only love me when I'm good. And if I'm not good, he won't love me and he'll punish me because that had been a bit of my experience. 
So I just want to say very clearly, that is not your heavenly father. That even if your father was great, even if your father loved you, cared for you, and he was a fantastic example, and again, we have got some of those in these rooms, God as a heavenly father is so much infinitely better than he could ever be. And what God also said to me is, Dave, I can make up for the deficiencies of your dad. There is a bit of having to say, I put aside some of the views and feelings because if I've got a bitterness inside me, I know that's going to affect me. And so I've had to give some things back to God and say, you know, Lord, I've got to give those to you. But I can't let it affect how I view God as a father. Luke 11, 11 says, you fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. We don't. As fathers, we try and do our best. But what it says is, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That he is so much better than your father could ever be. So as I said, whether your father's good or not so good, in some ways reach out to God as father. Going back, one of my scariest times as a dad was being told that my wife had gone into labor at 32 weeks, I think it was, or 34 weeks, 34 weeks, and that Sam was gonna be born massively early was going to be in special care, and I absolutely panicked. I cried out to God. I said, God, why is this happening? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you putting me through this? As I say, 26 years later, Sam is very, very healthy, very strong, very educated, very well-developed man, and I give pride for that. And in some ways, it's God, you knew what you were doing. You knew what you were doing, yes. In some ways, you allowed me to rely on you but you took that through and you dealt with it. Some other things, as I say, I still question. Some things I think, why did you allow that to happen? Now, some of those because I made the mistake. I did the stupid thing. And I blame God sometimes for something that was my stupidity. So I've got to separate that as well. But as I've said, even those that I don't understand and I didn't cause, over time, they caused me less pain. Because I look to God and say, you've got what's in my best interest. I read it last week, and I wasn't sure why I read it last week in a bit. I read the story of the prodigal son. And that was even before I'd done a lot of preparation for today. And so I'm going to read the verses again from it. And it's from something called the Passion Translation. So it's more of a paraphrase than the exact sort of literary sum. But I do really like it. And it says... The father raced out to meet him, swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly and kissed him over and over with tender love. Then the son said, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I could never deserve to be called your son. I'm sure as sons, a lot of us have perhaps felt like that, both to our earthly and heavenly fathers. But the father interrupted and said, Son, you're home now. Turning to his servants, the father said, quick, bring me the best robe, my own robe. I will place it on his shoulders, bring the ring, the seal of sonship, and I will put it on his finger. Bring out the best shoes you can find for my son. Let's prepare a feast and celebrate. For my beloved son was once dead, but now he was alive, 
Once was lost and now is found. Everyone celebrated with overflowing joy. That's my father. That's the love that my father showed me. Just as a reminder, the prodigal son had said to him, Dad, I wish you were dead. It's taking you too long to die because I can't get the inheritance. Give me the inheritance now. Forced him to give him the inheritance. Went away, spent it, wasted it. Made a total shame of the father. And yet the father acted like that to him. And no matter what you've done, no matter how you've mistreated your heavenly father, that's the kind of love that he wants to show you. I just want to leave a couple of takeaways just as a bit of a reminder. First takeaway, God is infinitely powerful and intimately personal. Don't separate those two. Don't believe one rather than the other. Have both. One evidence of his power is that he created the heavens and the earth. And he's also creating a place for you in heaven. If we take a literal, and he did take six days to build heaven and earth or to create heaven and earth, he spent thousands of years creating heaven. And if we dispute he created earth, do we dispute that he's created heaven? Do we begin to doubt that? We've got to have a faith and a belief in both. He's in control of the earth. It may not feel like it, but he's in control of everything, our lives, even when it doesn't feel like it. And lastly, he's the perfect and complete father. And he chose to adopt us as his sons. I couldn't speak and not mention adoption. It's such an important part of my own life. But God adopted you. He chose you. He looked at you and said, no matter what they're like, no matter what they're doing, I love them so much, I'm going to adopt them. I'm going to give every single benefit than if they were my born sons. And I suppose the only one remaining question is if you believe all that, if you believe those four takeaways, so what? Because it can't not make a difference. You can't believe all of those as a fundamental principle and live the same. You can't have the same priorities. You can't live the same way. You can't believe the same things. You can't not want to share it. You can't not want to develop an even greater relationship with your father. It has to make a difference, and you need to then make a difference. So if you're sitting here thinking, I do believe those, or I believe those again now, what now? Just spend a few minutes just having a discussion with God about the so what. And that won't be one you just have here. You'll have it, hopefully, when you leave here, when you go, what you do next is now what? What do I do now, Lord? If I believe those, I have that as a fundamental principle, or if you've changed and you believe that now, what difference is that going to make to you? So I'm just going to pray, and then we're finished. Father, we just thank you for the realities of these principles that the early church committed to, that they called them a creed, but, and in some ways the terminology doesn't matter. It's, they are our fundamental beliefs. They're what's important to us. I just pray that people will see these perhaps in a new way, in a new light, and it will make a difference. That will give them that foundation stone to actually put their feet upon. You say in Psalms that you lifted me out of the miry clay and put my feet upon a rock. And if people feel they're slipping away and are in slippery sands, pray, Father, you will lift them up and place their feet on a rock. We just thank you for this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. 
please keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarrington.com. <laughs>